Chapter 9, Walking Hallways Tomorrow is my 61st birthday. I'd rather have someone stomp on my foot. How many more birthdays do I have to face without her? She witnessed and supported me through the high drama I created around my 60th birthday, beginning when I was about 58 and a half. We didn't usually make a big deal out of birthdays, but she was the actual cause of my eventual hometown debauch. She kept asking me, what do you want to do for your 60th? My deadpan answer was always, is suicide an option? This was during the long period of my depression. Since the prospect filled me with nothing but dread, I put off giving her a direct response for at least a year. Those big birthdays are built-in self-examination tools. Like it or not, you're probably going to ask yourself, this is it? This is all that I've managed to do with my life? If you're like me, you're most likely going to come up short. Yep, that's it. That's all you've done. Deal with it. It was that build-up to my 60th that convinced me to begin a new strategy for my life. Acknowledge failure privately to myself, then declare victory to the world and move on. My list of failures is long. Hence, my list of victories is growing. I finally realized I could inflict myself on my old best friends, facing the same wretched crossing. I'm a lifetime believer in the maxim, misery loves company. I figured if I have to face turning 60 as a failure, I'd like to do it with my two oldest friends who were also turning 60. David was my best friend when I was 13, and Ben since 14. We had almost 50 years of connection to provide fertile ground for shared commiseration. Though far from failures themselves, I thought if they're not plagued by the same thoughts, they'll at least accept mine. They're certainly used to hearing me complain. That was the original plan, but then it grew. Though ostensibly restricted to the two classes that contained the greatest number of people turning 60, before long it became an open invitation to pretty much anyone in our high school. I'm guessing about 40 people turned up, in the large and beautiful home that David shares with his wife, Janet, a graduate from the class ahead of us, also turning 60. This from a small school where the average graduating class only has about 40 students. Turned out to be a hell of a lot of fun. My sole guiding directive was no bullshit. Be real about your fears, your regrets, your failures. Call me Jewish, but I have an abiding belief that if you begin from a place grounded in the suffering that's present for you, you'll soon find yourself sharing belly laughs, making toasts, and rediscovering that as long as you can have evenings like this, then maybe things aren't so bad after all. I only know one direction, through the pain. There's no sidestepping it. You live long enough and all your heroes die. Many of the people I loved and admired in my youth and early adulthood are already gone. Andrei Tarkovsky, Phil Oakes, Kurt Vonnegut, Bayard Rustin, Akira Kurosawa, Lenny Bruce, Huey Newton, George Jackson, Allen Ginsberg, John Lennon, George Harrison, Václav Havel, Wilt Chamberlain, Muhammad Ali, Saul Alinsky, I.F. Stone, Luis Bunuel, Jim Harrison, Richard Pryor, Michelangelo Antonioni, John Berger, 
Leonard Cohen. Even your contemporaries start to go. Bruce Sanofsky comes right to mind, from diabetes no less. One rudimentary marker of the length of your life is how many years you've outlived the greatest number of your own luminaries. Now, as I write this, my 61st birthday is here. Despite my not wanting it, come it did. And despite all my advanced anguish, it turned out pretty well. On retreat at Daibosatsu Zendo, DBZ, I seized the opportunity during a morning staff meeting to let it be known. I said, I don't need anything from you. I just want you to know today's my birthday and to please hold the thought with me because this is the first birthday I've had in 13 years without my wife. Life goes on even when we don't want it to. Death or another day. That's often the simple choice. It's all too tempting to choose death. But when I choose life, unexpected things sometimes happen. Tozan drove Sosan and me into the tiny town of Roscoe. We went to Raimondo's, a nice, family-run Italian place with real Italians. We listened to the Rat Pack hit parade, Sinatra, Martin, et al., which sounded heavenly and had a great lunch. Then we spread out and went to work, availing ourselves of Wi-Fi. Mostly, though, I read birthday greetings from 150 people. We watched kids come and dressed in their costumes, getting candy. We flirted with the cute waitresses, one dressed in a hot cat outfit. In response to all the good wishes, I posted a photo on my page from 2014 of Tracy at Rochester Airport. We had run across a kid's play zone while waiting for our plane. I asked her to get in. She played the part with real exuberance and joy, a kid really thrilled to be taking off in a jet plane, amply demonstrating her willingness to throw herself fully into any moment, making it a festival. All the quotidian tasks of monastery life, and there are many, absolutely constant cleaning being the main one, are made psychologically so much simpler because there are no alternatives. I can't kick back in front of the tube with a beer. I can't jerk off watching porn. You're committed to a certain period of time there. It will not serve you to ruminate about life elsewhere, not for a single moment. In a strict sense, it's similar to prison. Nowhere to go, nothing to do. Unlike prison, it's quiet and relatively easy to achieve a mindset of equanimity. Monastery, prison, daily life, we're all doing time. But it's not so easy to maintain equanimity once out. Doing exactly the same tasks at home is made much harder because of the multitude of other options that always exist. Why clean the stove? I can have the cleaning lady do it on Wednesday. Look at all these dirty dishes my guest left. Couldn't he clean up after himself? What the hell? And so the grousing continues. All the practice in the world, even for great periods of time in the most remote retreat centers, won't necessarily mean a goddamn thing when it comes to practicing outside those walls. Moments of joy can be truly fleeting, but fortunately, moments of anguish can too. Now as I write this, it's New Year's Eve. Yes, time is passing quickly, too quickly. Soon it will be six months since her death. I want time to slow down. 
It's the opposite of what I felt in the first months following her death. The excruciating pain then was intolerable. If time would only move faster, perhaps the pain would recede more quickly. Now that extreme pain is itself becoming a memory. There is increasing joy and ease in its place. But there is also that accelerating pace. The carcinogen-free, environmentally sound frying pan she bought now has permanent stains, perhaps from my inappropriate use. Yesterday I took the earbuds off her nightstand that had been there since she died, because mine are falling apart. I tried repurposing her battery-powered bedside clock to use in the bathroom, but it hasn't worked properly since she died, so I threw it out. The big Chinese fan she put in front of Beanie's cat box in the hallway is already in tatters. I tossed that, too. Our landlord has now sold the building, and the time may soon come when I have to move. It's irrelevant to him and future buyers that she died here, even though for me it's sacred ground. And as time speeds up, accumulating past her death, I'm starting to forget her, what her cheek felt like on mine, what my fingers felt running through her hair, the firm and rounded tones of her speech, what it's like to roll over and find her in bed, the exact words and tone of her response when I let her know, Honey, I'm home. The relentless pull of time takes her further away from me every day. It's not like I have a choice whether to stay fixed in that stream or not. I am in that stream, part of that stream. I can't stay stationary. So I feel the water rushing around me, over me, through me, washing me clear of grasping, of memory, of all that I knew about her and our exquisite life together. Unless I die first, eventually, too, Beanie will die, and with her the last living, everyday reminder of our life together will perish. Time moves me not only further and further away from her, but faster and faster. I'll be eating lunch or brushing my teeth when I'll remember some choice bit about her. I'll rush back to my computer to record it before it leaves my memory again, like some squirrel returning to its nest with a prize nut for the winter. I'm not sure what this says about me other than I'm still driven by fear. How much will I forget? So many golden nuggets already washed away. This process also brings home to me how much I might have missed in our relationship, how many moments I truly didn't notice or savor. What is this very record, if not partly an unintentional compendium of my unconsciousness? a permanent record of my obliviousness to some of her many wonders. Too much of what I've remembered has only underscored how dismissive and inattentive I was to many of her charms. I don't trust people who say they don't have regrets. Strikes me as bullshit, macho posturing. How can you not have regrets? Have you learned nothing from your life? That's what regret signifies— all the times you did something stupid that you wish you could do over, or times that you did nothing when you know you should have intervened, they're part of the continuum on which we measure our growth. I have plenty of regrets. The time at the Editor's Guild ceremony that I publicly embarrassed James Cameron for his pronunciation of my colleague's name. 
the time that I decided to reenact Marty Feldman's walk-this-way moment of hunchback hilarity from Young Frankenstein in front of a group of colleagues that included a man with a hunchback. And it's not just moments of clear embarrassment or shame, like the last fight I had with Tracy. Would it have killed me to simply say I'm sorry and be done with it, even if I didn't feel like I had anything to be sorry about? There have been numerous small miscalculations, too, when a simple word or gesture of kindness could have made a definitive difference, shifting the calibration of an entire relationship. All the times in the years building up to our final one together that I passed on making love with Tracy, or didn't tell her how much I loved her, expressing some indication of tenderness and care. We have but one moment to bring everything we know to the table and act decisively. This one. Depending on that choice, we face the possibility of a lifetime of regret. But of course, that too is a choice. I want, especially now, to practice awareness, recognizing any wrong decision, saying oops, marking the regret, and moving on. The key factor is forgiveness. In the wake of these inevitable regrets, can we forgive ourselves? Depending on the severity of the injury done by us or to us, it's not so easy. Both are challenging for me, though I tend to find it easier to forgive others. Forgiving myself for things I've done wrong is my greatest challenge. What I call my life's greatest koan, forgiving myself for initially partnering with and staying in relationship with Steve James to make hoop dreams, for not demanding a co-directing credit midway through the process when he reneged on our founding agreement, for not ever insisting on acknowledgement or apology, for still reverting to my childhood reflex and regularly wishing him dead, for not just slugging him in the face and being done with it, will no doubt remain my greatest challenge. I've taken my wedding ring off, I first removed it mid-October before leaving town for a conference in Mexico. It was my first long trip away from home since Tracy died. I made the decision partly because it would be a family-friendly event, where many participants bring their spouses and kids. I didn't want to answer questions about where my wife was. You could say I was being entirely practical. But left to my own devices to concoct a deeply meaningful or spiritual reason to take it off, to wait for the right time, or to construct a ceremony around it, I likely never would have done it. Once I returned home, I looked at the ring and considered putting it back on. No, let it be, I thought. Sometimes the superficially practical reasons are the best ones. Letting timing be determined by the purely functional can be a godsend removing us from the burden of depth. Besides, I reasoned, I still have her ring around my neck, and that means a lot more to me than mine around my finger. Her ring will be much more difficult to let go. Recently, in conversation with my financial manager for superannuation projections, I told him to posit 80 as the age of my death. That's it. Nineteen more years is the most I expect. Assuming I make it that far, I don't want them to go quickly. Yes, that would constitute almost a quarter of my lifetime, and a lot can happen in 19 years. 
but it's well established that the subjective pace of life accelerates as it lengthens. I want my final years to go slowly. That's the challenge I face leading an active life. How to be busy, but not hurried. How to be full, but mindful. Rummaging through Tracy's files for some tax papers, I found a copy of the program from our wedding ceremony. It contained this poem from Pablo Neruda, entitled LXXXIX, which Tracy loved and insisted we include. The prescience of it rocks me. When I die, I want your hands on my eyes. I want the light and wheat of your beloved hands to pass their freshness over me once more. I want to feel the softness that changed my destiny. I want you to live while I wait for you, asleep. I want your ears still to hear the wind. I want you to sniff the sea's aroma that we love together, to continue to walk on the sand we walk on. I want what I love to continue to live, and you whom I love and sang above everything else to continue to flourish, full-flowered, so that you can reach everything my love directs you to, so that my shadow can travel along in your hair, so that everything can learn the reason for my song. I could never do justice to Tracy's life the way she could and did with her own memoir, but that certainly was much of the motivation behind my writing this book, teaching others the reason for her song. But this is my song now. I guess it had to be this way. I have to sing it, complete with cracked notes and throat-catching sobs, replete with all my faults and foibles. I didn't want to, but this is the rite of passage the universe saw fit to offer me, to shake me from my depression, to rattle my life into some new form, to pull me from my depths and force me into some new engagement with being. Or, as Jumpo likes to say, to remove my head from my rectum. Do I feel more alive? I can't say that I do, but maybe that will come. Do I feel more dynamic somehow, like I have more agency? Truthfully, no. But what I do feel is that the blood that flows through my veins somehow has more potency. Somehow the depth of the sorrow I carry has distilled and heightened the capability of each drop. Perhaps it can be of medicinal use. It might just prove to be an elixir for those similarly troubled. Journal Entry, July 12th. I just came from the mortuary where I picked up Tracy's death certificate. One of the staff sought me out to tell me how heartbroken she was that Tracy had died. She was almost crying. She said they, of course, see dying people every day. But when we were together there... Two months ago, Tracy struck her as this luminous, exceptional being, radiating calm and goodness, even joy. The poor woman was really choked up in a funeral home. Today, December 3, 2016, not quite five months beyond her death, I'm feeling inexpressibly close to Tracy, an insane gratitude for her presence. She did found USF's writing warriors after all. Here I am, a warrior in the veterans' writing group. 
It's a reminder to me that I need not search outside myself for signs of her. No lightning in the sky. No meadowlark landing on my shoulder to whisper, I'm here. No rock formation approximating her profile. Just do what I do, be what I am, and the signs, reminders of her goodness and love are all around me. It's such a beautiful warm winter day here in Santa Rosa, and I've felt joyful since waking. Starting our morning circle with silence and meditation brought me right back to Daibosatsu, DBZ. Even bowing as we did following everyone's check-in made me grateful for Gasho and our Zen tradition of obeisance and humility to the strictness of form. I feel such tremendous gratitude and joy for the life that still is granted me. The warm breeze, the intermittent chirping of the birds, the willow tree in front of me silently dancing with the wind. Life is here and most present, whispering, See me, feel me, touch me, heal me. No, wait, though, that's Tommy, the Who Rock Opera. (laughs) But it is saying, Be with me now. There is no other. All that you seek is here. Stop your foolish wandering, seeking after another. I am your bride. I am the partner that you seek, and I am here. Sheesh, now I'm channeling Rumi. I can't have my own thoughts without them running into somebody else's. Sometimes it feels as if my mind has been cannibalized, not only by pop culture, but by my own free associations. Even in my almost moments of peace, I judge and judge and judge, judging what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what should be and shouldn't. But if I stop judging, or more to the point, stop believing that my judgments add value to reality, there is no more mental confusion, no more internal distress. I really don't have to rely on judgment except in rare cases of survival. When danger is not present, there is no need. I can let go of believing that there is anything real or of value in all that judging. Beyond all that judging, I simply know. In my deepest being, my deepest knowing is always available, always ready to inform. It's the judging, the chatter, that gets in the way of the knowing. Once removed, the knowing speaks, however softly, however tremulously, saying, Do this now. Do this now. Do this now. I need only be quiet enough to hear what it says. I need to listen. Now I discover that I can ride my bike past the Lake Merritt park benches we used to sit on without feeling twinges of pain. I can return from grocery outlet with items she would have enjoyed and feel warmth in that recognition. I can watch an episode of Colbert taking happy satisfaction in knowing she would have laughed, too. Her presence is all around me, not just in the places we shared during happy times, but the times of death and dying, too. The funeral parlor is across the street from the community center where I go for weekly yoga. Every time I walk the lake, I see the building where we held her life-honoring celebration and her memorial service. I walk into Kaiser Hospital regularly, where she almost died, for my own checkups and meds. We chose these places not only because they were close to home, but because dying is very much part of being home. 
death is integrated into my daily experience of life in ways that were unreachable before. Her presence is transforming me now. It still feels more remote than I would like, but when she arises in my thoughts, it's the love and appreciation for her that arises most with them, not the feeling of loss. I'm choosing to remember her now in a different way. It's me who's keeping her alive, rather than letting the fact of her death color and determine everything. Maybe this, too, is par for the course of healing, simply a function of making different choices. It's true that lightness and joy have returned to my life. I attribute it mostly to my Zen practice and to my time in the monastery. Playfulness is back. I note it with gratitude. I kid around more and find myself engaging strangers more easily, even flirting with women effortlessly when in the past I'd be hamstrung by self-consciousness and self-doubt. If I can find Tracy anywhere, it's right here in the present moment, being fully attuned to all that is vibrant and alive around me, which is to say everything. She was so good at that. No moment was ever too small for her, too insignificant. If I can be present in all the mundane moments, then I can find her. It's paradoxical. Looking closely and patiently enough at each and every moment makes it possible to experience that bubbliness, the effervescence of life. Then the aliveness in me becomes her aliveness. I can feel her. Drink Tracy like water. Yes, this is me, the essence of who I am, the drinker. Most of my life I've been looking in all the wrong places, in all the big stuff, the moments of drama and deep meaning. It's certainly no flaw to seek the bottom line in everything, asking what is the essence of this moment, what are they really trying to get at, what needs to happen here. But it does have a downside. Overlooking the surface of things does an injustice to understanding the whole. It makes no sense to know the human skeleton but have little appreciation for the flush of a human cheek, the carved signature of the human hand, the fragrance of a musky, perfumed woman, the sweep and roll of the crown's hair, the sparkle in the eyes. I must learn to pay absolute attention to the commonplace. The depth of focus and appreciation makes each moment resonant, makes it vital, and makes it possible to find her. Charlotte Joko Beck one of my newest and now favorite Dharma teachers, founded a Zen school called Ordinary Mind. That concept has been a revelation for me. We need not look outside ourselves, outside anything real that is going on, including the darkness within our own minds, our emotions and shadows, to find enlightenment. What we seek is here all the time in the everyday, in the ordinary, in fact, that very seeking can remove us from the here and now and become its own mental framework with which to judge ourselves as insufficient. There's nothing to seek at all. Just observe and work with what's here now, because what's here now is sufficient. It's more than sufficient. It's everything. Ordinary mind equals extraordinary Tracy. Like petting Beanie in the morning, the time when she most needs affection— do I love doing it because Tracy loved doing it and did it so well? Yes. Do I do it because she asked me to do it every day after she died? Yes. 
but it's also about taking the time to love on Beanie because it brings me alive, out of the tasks of the day and into being. I can delight in her newly plush winter coat, discover the new scabs where she's overgroomed, let her tilt her head back toward my hand to rub her nose and third eye, watch her lean into me to make the scratches behind her ear juicy. Now for the first time she sits on my lap regularly and keeps me company while I write. Being with Beanie, I can be with Tracy, and so with almost all daily experience. Who knew that ordinary mind could accomplish what the mystical could not? And then, when I've given up on it and least expect it, the mystical does occur, real magic arises, and the capital D Divine Mystery materializes. My long-standing dream comes true, and Tracy joins me on meditation retreat. She didn't survive to see me ordained, yet here she is, in the hollow-bone zendo, in the January days just before ordainment, meditating, staring into the ornate circular mirror that adorns the scarred and exquisite wooden floor of this old Sonoma Mountain Zen Center barn, the mirror which is the heart of our circular sitting arrangement that's unlike all other Zen traditions. Tracy's upside-down head suddenly appears just over the far rim of the mirror. What? I look up and see Ashley, a young woman sitting opposite me, who, although lovely herself, looks nothing like Tracy. But I glance down to the mirror again, and in fact it is Tracy, looking much like she did when we first met, 14 years ago. Same short dark hair, same glasses, same calm, steady eyes. The mirror cuts off Ashley's long hair, distorts her glasses, and lifts her gaze up. It's Tracy, younger, meditating with me. I want to bring a camera into the zendo with me so I can prove it to others. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm awestruck. It's my wife, and she sits in meditation with me throughout the week, sit after sit, sometimes her head peering out between the incense burner and the crystal lotus candle holder, sometimes eyes open, sometimes closed. Her presence is a bona fide miracle, something I gave up seeking. Yet here it is. I'm in wonder and tearful in gratitude. At Fujen's recommendation, I wrote a haiku on each monthly anniversary of Tracy's death for the subsequent year. Like writing this book, like doing ceremonies at her altar and at USF, this exercise helped tremendously to continue to move the grief through my system. It somehow marked my progress, though like most deep emotional transitions, not in any linear fashion. In October, I wrote six additional haikus as an accountability makeup for missing a meeting with him. Tracy Haikus, 2016-2017, August Now it's been one month. I miss you every day. Why can't I go, too? September They say you've journeyed on, reborn now into new life. What shape will you take? October Opportunity, collaboration coming. The future is now. 
My house now for sale. It's not about me, is it? Possibilities. A hundred days now. I fear forgetting you, love. Merge soon with my soul. Life is calling me back. Come back. We're not finished with you yet, my friend. Women arriving. Are they my friends, supporting, or want something more? Tracy supporting me across the other side. She kept her promise. Still, I'd throw it all away, give up my future to hear her soft breath. November. Four months since you died. Clinton or Trump, who cares? Now sitting in Zazen. December. Tears still fall for you. Seven gifts that cost nothing. You gave, now I give. January. Gone six months today. Sashin begins. No, no, you. N-O-K-N-O-W, you. Ordination now. February. Prayer ties burned in tears. Lakota pleads for your health. Not strong enough? Just right? March. Dating. Brushing teeth. Stool. Habits of hygiene. Crying. Practice to forget. April. Happy birthday, love. Your 60th. You'd delight. What a great elder you'd be. May. A woman, now here. A mom, sad, wise, like you. Bald. She makes me happy. June. No more ideas, only loss. The gulf of time remains. I give up. July. One year gone today. Not quite Bastille Day. Who's liberated? At this one-year marker, I find I'm talking to myself all the time now. I'm not sure why or where this practice sprang from, but I recognize that it's accompanied by feelings of lightness. I'm playful, a feeling maybe akin to happiness. Not quite talking to her, but not quite not. It's just fun. I laugh more when I hear my thoughts out loud. It's easier to see them as ridiculous. I suppose it's a continuation of the practice we had when we were together, trying out different voices and colloquialisms to amuse ourselves. I dramatize my thoughts vocally and bodily, making them sillier still, you know, getting jiggy with it. That was an expression Tracy loved. She used it to mean, I agree with you. The Internet tells me it originated with a Will Smith song in 1998. Based on the context of those lyrics, I don't think she was using it correctly. Whatevs. If you haven't experienced hilarity, I suggest you could do worse than start with a polished, 50-ish, 
Caucasian English professor from Kansas, widening her eyes to respond to a serious question with, I can get jiggy with it. Where this new buoyancy will lead, I don't know. Just float. Maybe I can become the latest Monty Python minister of silly walks. Tracy always commented on how we were similarly easily amused. This is a good trait to have. Seems entirely possible as long as I'm fiercely unwilling to take myself seriously. There often comes a time during our hollow bones retreats when one person starts laughing uncontrollably. Amazing how infectious truly heartfelt laughter is. If anyone comments at all, it's usually, he finally got the joke. The joke being how ridiculous it is to try to control anything, to experience whatever arises with anything other than total acceptance. The simple absurdity of so much human grasping. We have moments when the entire zendo disintegrates into merriment, bodies sprawled across zabutans, shaking and howling with delight. Occasionally, these moments are spontaneous. More often, they're constructed through a ritual we call sacred laughter. We recall moments in our lives when we've been emotionally stuck, in anger, fear, shame, sadness. The emotions and circumstances don't matter. Then, with a slight shift in perspective toward our wisdom mind, our heartfelt mind, our pure discernment mind, we spontaneously see it clearly for the misguided folly that it is and laugh our asses off. It doesn't take much, just a willingness to let go of the way things should be. Jumpo always says, to experience delight, just turn on delight. Tracy delighted in so many things. My new goal in life is to become as mirthful as she was. Laughter is the key antidote to my anger, my fear, my suffering, all my neuroses. You'd never know it from this book, or from most of my films, but I used to think that was my real purpose for living, certainly saying, I was born to create comedy, usually does get a laugh. My most secret aspiration, my most grandiose ambition from my early adult years, after I first discovered filmmaking, was to someday make films that had a smattering of the impact, the pathos and the humor of Charlie Chaplin. Since I failed, I'm herewith declaring success. Buddhists of many different persuasions say that to be born into a human life is a gift of immeasurable proportion, that every human life presents an opportunity to return to oneness, or God if you prefer, not after you've lived, but while. Each of us represents an unlimited capacity for joy, creativity, and service to the greater good. My single greatest fear in life has always been that my final thought will be, I blew it, I wasted my life, I could have done so much more. I pray that that was not my father's last thought. I feel confident it was not Tracy's. I want to leave this life knowing I realized my greatest potential— maximized my every opportunity, wasting not a precious breath. My father's sudden death began my obsession with dying and generated numerous accompanying neuroses, my suicidal ideation, my expectation that death is the logical end of every conflict, my fantasies of murdering my enemies, my fixation with dying, 
my assumption that I'll lose all my loved ones to sudden death. It may also have generated much of my depression and despair. Tracy's death relieved those fears and suspended many of those neuroses. Death is no longer some unnamed other, some force of darkness and confusion. It's not a manifestation of evil. It's not an occasional interloper here to do me harm. It's with me all the time. Most surprising to say, it is not my enemy. It is a companion, still mysterious, yes, but a known familiar escort far more recognizable, far more trusted and intimate, here to lift blinders from my eyes, to present truth, to awaken me. I know now in its presence, in walking with death, as I did with Tracy her final months, there can be comfort and ease, moments of immense beauty and wonder, a depth of sharing, an experience of love and devotion I'd not thought possible. There's a famous story kicking around Buddhist land. Like most, it has multiple versions. I'll relate the Zen version, starring, of course, a Zen master. Out walking one day, our Zen master is confronted by a ferocious man-eating tiger. He slowly backs away from the animal, only to find that he is trapped at the edge of a high cliff. The tiger snarls with hunger and pursues the master. His only hope of escape is to suspend himself over the abyss by holding onto a vine that grows at its edge. As the master dangles from the cliff, two mice, one white and one black, begin to gnaw on the vine. If he climbs back up, the tiger will surely devour him. If he stays then there is the certain death of a long fall onto jagged rocks. Some versions say other tigers wait below. The slender vine begins to give way, and death is imminent. Just then, the precariously suspended Zen master notices a wild ripe strawberry growing along the cliff's edge. He plucks the succulent berry and pops it in his mouth. His final thought? How delicious! In the end, we're all forgotten. This is the way of things. Only very few names stand the test of history. John Mellencamp, a songwriter and musician of middling talents, recently lamented this publicly when he compared himself to Bob Dylan, recognizing that Dylan alone will be remembered from this era. Yes. The best we might hope for are practices that commemorate and honor dead ancestors. The dead ancestors will all soon enough be, like commonplace rituals observed every day in Japan. We all stand on the shoulders of our grandfathers and grandmothers. The lives we lead are in many ways products of the dreams they had for our lives, the self-sacrifice and devotion. The cultural practices they leave for us are their request to mentorship, rites of passage, values, rituals, myths and stories, morals and ethics. These are the gifts of the past enriching our human birthright. Our task in our lifetime is simply to recognize and honor them, perhaps tweaking them slightly before blessing them on their way, furthering their advance through time. I still miss her. Though I don't say it to myself every day, I still say it often enough. Tracy's dead. And there are many times that I still can't grasp it at first. 
Why is it still true? Why can't I just be wrong? When I hear her coming around the corner carrying fresh vegetables from the morning market, half-smiling mischievously when she finishes a tale about some new administrative blunder saying, that's crazy talk. Usually thoughts like these signal only one thing, time for another round of tears. That's all I know how to do, weep, weep, and weep some more. Every time I think I've hit bottom, this has got to be the end. Another round awaits. The difference now is that the gaps are greater and the depths of the internal squeezing are lessened. I've gone whole months without tears. Happy, but more importantly, tranquil. According to Laurie Anderson in her otherwise sublime film Heart of a Dog, Tibetans believe you should never cry when you lose a loved one. They say that you disturb the transition of the dead through the bardo, perhaps confusing them, suggesting to them that they shouldn't move on to their next life. I'm sorry. That's crazy talk. I'm a human being, very much full of all that life offers me. Full of shit sometimes, yes, but full of tears from a broken heart. This is part of what makes us human. I have no desire to be perfect and conform my life to some philosophy or set of standards, however exalted. Life itself is my teacher. It tells me that when my beloved dies, weeping is entirely appropriate. Instead of the Tibetan edict, don't cry, which sounds like a highfalutin form of emotional repression, I prefer the words of Rabbi Robert Kahn. Tears are the proof of life. The more love, the more tears. If this be true, then how could we ever ask that the pain cease altogether? For then the memory of love would go with it. The pain of grief is the price we pay for love. We have a scar for the rest of our lives. I close now with this photo of Tracy and me at our wedding. Not because she was so beautiful and happy, even though she was. Not because this is how I want to remember her, even though it is. Not even because this was the happiest day of my life. But because it vibrates with the energy and animating force that is life itself. In the end... It is not death that is in any way remarkable, but the fact that we have lived, and lived well. It is in our living that we should vie to be remembered, albeit with our hopefully peaceful and happy deaths as part of the fullness of that living. May we each bow to the divinity that is life and to its most human expression in each and every one of us. And in equal measure may we bow to death, that which is the home from which we all come and to which we all return. In her last few weeks, Tracy would get up in the middle of the night, go sit at the kitchen table, fall asleep, wake up, and come back to bed. Stumbling through the hall in the dark, she twice stepped on Beanie, setting her off yowling. I couldn't understand why she was doing this. Where is she going? What is she trying to accomplish? It's life, I finally decided, her life force, that pure, unadulterated part of her that knows she's dying but still has energy to burn, that still wants so much to live. She knows there are things still to be done that she'd like to do, 
That inviolable energy was enough to get her to the kitchen table, the place of work. But that was all she had. Once there, nothing remained for her to do anything with. She told me at those times she saw people in the house, specters, also walking the hallway. I said, it's the ancestors coming to escort you home. She nodded her agreement. Maybe I'll see them too when it's my time, and maybe one of them will be Tracy. Soon enough, we'll all be walking hallways, looking to escort loved ones home.